Well, good morning. This is the final Sunday of 2020. So if I asked you to pick a word, choose a word that would describe this year that we've just been through, 2020, what would you choose? What word would best describe this year? Take a second, just kind of think about it. Maybe um, if you're taking notes, just jot down the first word that comes to mind in the corner there, or just make a mental note. What word best puts 2020 in a nutshell? Well, every year, one thing that Webster's Dictionary does is they choose a word of the year. So that's something that's kind of fun thing that they do. I look forward to this every year. Uh, it's something that if you pay attention to it, it, it's a little insightful about kind of the year and what's, uh, what's been going on in the year. One word that describes kind of where we are as a culture. So this year's word is probably not a huge surprise to anybody. This year's word is pandemic. Not a big surprise, right? And so maybe that's, in fact, that might be the word that came to mind for you. Uh, or maybe you came up with something different. Maybe you thought of something like isolation or, or chaotic, something like that. But I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to guess that nobody thought of the word that we're going to be talking about today. The word that we're going to be talking about today is peace. So on the surface, this has not been a great year for peace. On the surface, it hasn't been a great year for peace. And if peace is the first word that comes to your mind when you think about this year, then you've definitely had an atypical year. And I would love to hear your story after this. Um, But throughout December, we've been looking at these four names of Jesus, four names of Jesus from the book of Isaiah, where there's this prophecy about his birth. And the name that we come to today, the final name, is Prince of Peace. Jesus is called Prince of Peace. Let me read the passage for you out of Isaiah 9-6. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Jesus is called Prince of Peace. And if we go on, if we keep reading the first part of the next verse, we see this. It says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So let's pause right there and just look at that verse 7, what we just read. It doesn't say, it doesn't just say here, of his peace, there will be no end. Instead, it says, of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. That is, his peace will continually grow. It will continually increase. But looking at this year, it seems that peace has maybe at best held its ground, if not decreased, which is the opposite of what we're reading right here. But this passage is saying that peace, it's not just going to hold its ground. It's not just going um, to hold its own. It's actually going to, under Jesus' reign, it's going to increase. And it is, in fact, increasing. And that seems like an audacious claim, especially in a year that's marked by conflict and by unrest. I, I can't tell you how many times this year, I'm sure it's true for you as well, where you've heard or you've read a story about one human being attacking another human being because of their political views or because of the color of their skin or because they are or are not wearing a mask in a given context. But if we step back a little bit, even just if we take a surface view of history, we see that calling Jesus the prince of this ever-increasing peace, it's not just an audacious claim in the year 2020. Actually, it's been an audacious claim in each of the past 2,000 years between when Jesus came to earth and now. And I I guarantee it's going to ring of audacity in 2021 as well. You can count on that. 
And there's a reason for that. The reason for that, we're all familiar with this, is that peace has a problem. Peace has a problem, and that problem is that we live in a world that is marked by injustice. Peace has a problem that we live in a world marked by injustice, and justice is the way that things should be, or the way that things ought to be. And so injustice is when things are not the way that they should be. When things are not the way that they should be, then, then peace is opposed. And this, of course, begs the question, how in the world does anybody know what should be, or what shouldn't be, or what ought to be, or what ought not to be? Or what do you do when two people have different ideas of what should or shouldn't be? To have anything beyond just arbitrary, dueling opinions about what should and shouldn't be, an authority is required. Now, many of you know that my wife and I, we have got four little kids. Uh, Their ages right now are two through six years old. And as you can probably imagine, each of these two through six-year-olds has a will. They have a will, they have desires, they have opinions on what we're talking about today, about what should and shouldn't be. And so, you can imagine also that from time to time, my wife and I, we find ourselves arbitrating disputes about what is just, what should or shouldn't be in a situation. And so, how do we do that? How do we determine what is just? Those of you who are parents, what do you do? How do you determine what is just? Well, let me tell you what we, what we don't do. What we don't do is line up all of the parties involved in that particular conflict and say, okay guys, time to fight it out. Last preschooler standing, you're the authority on what's right and wrong in this situation. Remember our family motto, might is right. Okay, go for it. We don't do that. We also, we also don't say, okay, whoever puts forward the most impressive display of emotional fireworks in this situation, you get to call the shots on right and wrong. Now, sometimes they think that's how it should work, but that's not what we do. Instead, what we do is I, as their father, or my wife, Andrea, we come in, and we come in with authority. We come in with authority, but not just that. We come with authority and words. I take their sense of what should and shouldn't be, and I try to bring clarity to that and correction to that if necessary. And so it's similar with us and God. God has placed in each of us a sense of justice. The ideas of right and wrong, these aren't concepts that, um, that are foreign to us. Every human has ideas of right and wrong. But like any child, what we do is we twist those ideas of right and wrong in order to suit our own preferences at the time, or we distort them in order to serve our desires. Now, thankfully, God hasn't just put the sense of justice on our hearts. He's also put it on paper. He comes in with words. And the Bible is a written record of God's word. His word, it clarifies and it expands on the standard of right and wrong, good and evil that he's placed on our hearts. And so through this, through what he's written on our hearts and what he's written in his word, we're able to look around and we're able to see with a high degree of confidence that things are not as they should be. So we've been given this ability to recognize injustice when we see it, but we tend to use that ability somewhat selectively. We tend to use it to spot injustice in in others and avoid seeing injustice in ourselves. And that's why I can watch the news and I can just get mad. I can get mad about the injustice that I see on the news. I can get mad when I perceive that others are treating me unjustly 
But then at the same time, I can remain totally oblivious to the injustice that I inflict on others. And then even in those rare instances, when we do spot injustice in ourselves, we tend to view it simply as a problem just between ourselves and between the people that we've wronged, just kind of right there. God, however, he sees a lot more going on. God sees the bigger picture of our injustice. Psalm 51, it's written by King David, and it's, it's a psalm really of, of deep repentance. David has just sinned, and now he's repenting, and kind of this Psalm 51, this is his, his picture and his prayer of repentance to God. I want to read for you verse 4 out of this psalm. It says, he's talking to God, he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. So what David is saying here is that his sin, it's not primarily against others. That is, it's not primarily horizontal in nature. It's not primarily just between him and those that he's wronged. He's saying that it's primarily, his sin is primarily against God. So it's vertical in nature. It's primarily between him and God. Okay, great. That makes sense. That makes sense if David's sin is something like grumbling against God, or if it's something that's obviously in that vein, something that's obviously between him and God. But David's actual sins here were murder and adultery. And specifically, what he had done is he had used his position of power, being the king, he had used his position of power to have one of his most loyal soldiers killed. And the reason that he had done that was because David was trying to cover up an affair that he had had with that soldier's wife. So it's actually hard to be more unjust toward others than David was in this instance. And still, David is saying that his sin, first and foremost, was against God. Like we read, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, obviously, others were hurt by his sin. You could even argue that lives were ruined. One life was ended by his sin. And this this happens with our sin as well. Whether it's direct or indirect, nearly all of our sin causes hurt in others in some way. But behind David's sin, as, as behind our sin, was a rejection of God and what God says is right. So sin, yes, sin does hurt others. But because sin is a rejection of God and what God says is right, it also places us in opposition to God. Sin, it breaks our peace with God and it puts us in a state of conflict with him. And so because of this, the biggest justice problem that each person has, it's not the unfair treatment that they receive at the hands of another. Instead, the biggest justice problem that each person has is the fair punishment of their sins that they will receive from rejecting God. Now, thankfully, God is merciful, and he doesn't deliver all of that punishment on us all at once uh, the second that we sin. He delays it. He's merciful. He delays it. But the eventual punishment is eternal separation from God, and then by extension, eternal separation from everything that is good. And that's something that on our own, none of us can avoid. But you might say, didn't you just say like 30 seconds ago that God is merciful? So if God is merciful, then doesn't it stand to reason that he might give me a pass on my sin, or at least that I have a decent shot of God giving me a pass on my sin? And we tend to do that. We tend to focus um, to overlook, on, overlook God's justice and focus only on 
his mercy. And God is merciful, but he does not allow his mercy to override his justice. His character is committed to justice, and that means that he won't turn a blind eye to sin, he won't sweep it under the rug, he won't ignore it or just pretend like it didn't happen. For him to do that, if you think about it, for him to do that would actually be to call things that are wrong right, and to call things that are evil good, and he will not do that. But if God won't ignore our sin, if he won't ignore it, then how will he create this peace that we're talking about today? Not by violating his own character. Instead, he paid the price. And the price of peace is the prince of peace. So peace has a price, and that price is Jesus, the prince of peace. Now, Isaiah, the book that we're in, this was written 700 years before Jesus. 700 years before Jesus. And chapter 9, it contains this prophecy that we've looked at about Jesus' birth. Chapter 53, it contains a prophecy about his death. Let me read to you from Isaiah 53 about his death. It says, But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities, that is, our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, far from looking the other way when it came to our sin. Look what, look what God did with it here. It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. So God took our sin. He didn't gloss over it. Instead, he laid it on his son, Jesus, who suffered and bore the price, the punishment that we deserved. And aren't you glad that we serve a God who doesn't just passively look the other way at sin? I'm so glad for this. I'm so glad we serve a God that doesn't just passively look the other way at sin, but instead dealt with it head on at a great cost to himself. And this is how God determined to punish our sin and at the same time show us mercy and bring peace to us. As it says here, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That is, upon Jesus was the punishment that brought us peace with God. The Prince of Peace purchased peace for us. And Jesus was uniquely qualified to make this purchase of peace. One reason for that is that he was sinless. He lived a life without sin. And one, one condemned criminal could never take on the, the punishment of another criminal. And the reason for that is obvious, because each of them would have their own debt to pay. And similarly, no sinner could take on and pay for the sin of another. But Jesus lived a sinless life. He didn't have his own sin to pay for, and that made him a valid substitute for the sin of another. But not only was he sinless, he was also God in flesh. And as God, he was able to exchange his sinless life, not just for one sinful life, but for the lives of every single person who would turn to him and seek forgiveness. Also as God, he's the one who we've sinned against. As we just read in Psalm 51, as God, Jesus is the one that we actually have sinned against. And if God is the one that we have ultimately wronged by our sin, then God, and God in flesh, is the only one who can sacrifice his life for us. Jesus was qualified to be a substitute because he was not only the judge in the case against us, but he was the plaintiff as well. He was the one who was wronged in addition to being the judge in the case against us. And so the Prince of Peace, he created a path for us to have peace with God. And this is one of the ways that peace is 
increasing today. Peace is increasing today as the good news of Jesus, as it spreads to more and more people, and as it reaches to corners of the earth where it's never been before. And so for the past 2,000 years, his peace has been increasing as God calls people out of conflict with him and into peace with him. But then as he's doing that, all over the world, something else that he's doing is he's also calling people out of conflict with each other and into peace with each other. Now, last week I was talking with with one of my daughters and she said to me, she said, Dad, I'm scared to go to heaven. She said, I'm scared to go to heaven because I've never been there before and I don't know what it will be like. I thought, wow, I can really relate to that. How relatable is that? Um, It can be difficult to think about going to heaven without mixed feelings because of the unknowns. But one of the things that helps me really look forward to going to heaven is knowing that one day all of my relationships are going to be defined by this peace. No drama, no conflict, no selfishness on my part. I mean, let that sink in, what that would be like to have all of your relationships defined by peace. And the peace that Jesus purchase for us. One day it's going to be total. It's going to permeate every aspect of our life. But in the meantime, he's given us a picture. And it's an, it's an imperfect picture to be sure, but a picture nonetheless of what relational peace can look like here on earth. And that picture is the church. Peace has a picture and that is the church. Shortly, shortly after Jesus, um, after the life of Jesus, after he came after he died and rose again and went back up to heaven, the Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to a new church that had been started, um, some churches in and around the city of Ephesus. And here's one of the things he said of Jesus in his letter to that church. He said, For he himself, that is Jesus, he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. So what's this talking about here? Uh, who, who are the two groups that he's talking about? What's this dividing wall of hostility in this passage? Well, the two groups are the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the non-Jews. That's who he's referring to. And the wall of hostility, that refers to the prejudice and the animosity that existed between those two groups. The, the Jews and the Gentiles, they have a long-standing history of hostility toward one another. But Paul is reminding them here in this passage, he's saying, Jesus didn't just come to help you tolerate your differences between each other. He didn't come to just help you coexist or, or, or live side by side but separate. He came for something a lot bigger than mere, merely you coexisting. He came to destroy the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between you, and he came to make peace where previously there was no peace, and he came to make one new group out of what was previously two groups. And this, this picture of peace that we read about in this passage, this is actually far different than the picture that Jesus' disciples had expected. When Jesus was walking the earth, when he was with his disciples, as far as the disciples were concerned, injustice, it had a name. And the name of injustice was the Roman Empire. And so their expectation from Jesus was that Jesus was going to harness God's power and he was going to overthrow their oppressors. In other words, their expectation was that he was going to bring peace by giving the Jews victory over the Gentiles. And this was not 
really an outlandish expectation. It's easy for us to stand here and kind of cast judgment on them in the past, but actually it was well within Jesus' power to do that. He had the power to do that, and it didn't seem like a bad idea at the time. That probably would have been a good thing. But instead of giving one group of people the upper hand over the other group of people, the Prince of Peace did something far more radical than that, far more radical than what everyone was expecting. Instead, he took people, he took individuals, and he took families out of those two groups, and he broke down, he destroyed that dividing wall of hostility between them, and he made one group out of them. And in doing that, he created his church. Now, as God's church today, we represent his peace in the world. It would be a great inconsistency for those of us who have been given peace with God to then turn around and live in conflict with each other and in conflict with others. Rather than being a group of people who are called to just tolerate hostility or to merely coexist, we're called to reflect the light of Jesus in this dark world, and we do that by putting on display the peace that Jesus brought in the way that we relate to each other and the way that we relate to others. Hebrews 12:14 says this, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, the, the Greek word here in this passage that's translated make every effort, it can also be translated as strive or, or, or pursue. And so if you look up this verse in another translation, you might see it as strive for peace with everyone or pursue peace with everyone. And for me, this is really helpful, the ideas of make every effort, strive or, or, or chase after, pursue peace. It's really helpful because it reminds me that, ironic as it might seem, peace it's not achieved passively. It has, peace has an aggressive edge to it. If you sit around and you just are waiting for peace to come into your relationships without lifting a finger, you're going to be waiting for a long time. And so the phrase, make every effort, that reminds me to initiate peace in my relationships, just like God initiated peace with me. And so how do you do that? One of the most practical tools that God has given each of us for initiating peace in our relationships is forgiveness. And this is something where forgiveness, this is something where we could do a whole message series on this. And in fact, we have done a whole message series on this. And so if this is something that you think would be really helpful for you to learn more about, if this is an area where, where you've, you struggle or have struggled in the past, then I'd encourage you to check out a message series that Bevan did back in 2017 called Total Forgiveness. You can find it on the website by going to the archives, the message archives. It's a really helpful series. But for now, I want us all to stop and consider just two questions, two kind of self-reflection questions related to forgiveness. Uh, the first of those is, what dividing walls of hostility am I maintaining? We just read about these dividing walls of hostility out of Ephesians, what dividing walls of hostility am I maintaining? Is there anyone for whom you're harboring resentment or a desire to get even? Maybe, um, maybe it's that person where when you think of them, you get that pit in your stomach <laughs> because you know that you're holding on to thoughts or feelings of hostility. Well, Jesus came specifically to destroy those walls. And when we reinforce those walls, what we find ourselves doing is actually battling against the work that God wants to be doing in our lives and the work that he wants to do in the lives of others through us. 
You know, maybe the person who comes to mind is someone that you've forgiven in the past, but then that hostility has kind of crept its way back into your heart. And if so, that's not a cause to beat yourself up. It's actually a great opportunity to ask the Prince of Peace to help you once again forgive that person. So what dividing walls of hostility am I maintaining? And then next, whose forgiveness do I need to aggressively seek? And when I say aggressively here, I don't, I don't mean, you know, go up to the person that you wronged and kind of grab them by the shoulders and just shake them until they agree to forgive you. I don't mean aggressive, like physically. But uh, instead, I mean to take initiative, take the initiative, take the initiative to clear up the relationship. How can I be aggressive to clear up relationships? I had, I just uh, finished a meeting recently with a bunch of people, and at the end of the meeting, someone said, hey, you know what, everyone, would you forgive me for something that I said in that meeting? And they mentioned something they had said. They said, I, I painted so-and-so in a bad light when I said that. That was, that was wrong of me. I shouldn't have done that. Would you forgive me? And so everyone in the meeting said, yeah, of course, of course we forgive you. Um, and it was, it was a really simple example, but it was something that stood out to me and something that challenged me. It made me think of all these times when I should clear up a relationship or when I should ask forgiveness, but I don't do it. And, and honestly, the reason that I don't do it is usually because it's kind of embarrassing to ask for forgiveness or um, maybe even more likely is I don't, I don't want to admit that I was wrong in that situation. And so what about you? What forgi- uh, whose forgiveness do you need to aggressively seek? Now, as we wrap up this morning talking about the Prince of Peace, I want to go back, I want to revisit that bold claim that we encountered from the very beginning. Isaiah 9-7, where it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And I just want to ask the question, so is peace increasing? Is it increasing? If so, how? Well, his peace is increasing. It's increasing in two ways. First, as more and more people enter into peace with God. When you made a decision to follow Jesus, if that's a decision that you've made, when you made a decision to follow Jesus, that was peace increasing. And we can continue to be a part of that effort as we partner together and as we share the good news with those who don't know. And the second way that peace is increasing is as Jesus knocks down those dividing walls of hostility. And that's something that he invites us to be a part of as well. And we do that, we join him in that as we aggressively seek forgiveness where it's needed and we make every effort for peace with those, with one another and those around us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you um, took the initiative where we deserve nothing but your judgment, God. You loved us enough to send your only son to this world, to die on a cross for our sins. And you invite us to take full advantage of that and live in complete peace with you and to strive for peace with each other and look forward to a day where we can fully realize that um, living in heaven with you and with others, God. And so, um, so we thank you that you invite us into that. God, I pray that you would help us to be ambassadors of your peace, that we wouldn't just uh, enjoy that, um, but that we would enjoy that and that we would help you would help use us to spread that to others, God. We thank you so much for your love for us and how you tangibly demonstrated that on the cross. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.